For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. We noted that that word carnal means I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For what I am doing I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find in a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Just a really brief review over what we talked about last week. Last week we basically asked a question about this I that Paul is referring to in this passage. And the question we ask is, is Paul speaking about his life prior to coming to saving life in Jesus Christ? Is Paul basically speaking about his life before he was a born-again believer? Because it sounds in many ways like it. You remember in Romans chapter 6, Paul says that we've died to sin. But here in this passage, it seems like sin is still alive in Paul. He's struggling with it. So maybe Paul is referring to his life before he was born again. That's the one idea. The other idea is, or is Paul speaking about his life in the present moment, in the present hour? Is he giving an expression of something that is contemporary with Paul at the time in which he's writing it? And what we ultimately concluded was that only a born-again man could say some of the things that are in this text. Only a born-again man could say that he delighted in his inward man after the law of God. Only a born-again man could say that he had a mind or the mind to follow and obey the will of God and the law of God because when Paul speaks of the mind, he's not speaking of the working of your brain cells. He's speaking of the spirit, that this new spirit that comes upon a man. We also said that only a born-again individual could look into their behavior and their conduct and see the exceeding sinfulness of it, the exceeding sinfulness of the impulses and weakness of their own moral powers. And finally, only a born-again man would long for a deliverance that was completely apart from himself. The born-again individual doesn't just discover that he needs Jesus to save him from the penalty of his sins. And Jesus, I just want you to save me from the penalties of my sins so I can go to heaven. But the born-again man, once he experiences the saving power and life of Christ, wants to know Christ working through him throughout the rest of his life. He wants to see God being magnified as the one who saves him from beginning to end. Now, we get confused in this issue. We can confuse on that very matter, and we're going to talk about that more today. But deep inside, the born-again person wants to say, like the song that's sung, Jesus led me all the way. It was all by him. It was all of his working. It was all of his power from beginning to end. We don't want to take any credit for ourselves. 
The question might be asked, how do you know that you're going to go to heaven? And the believer doesn't say, well, you know, there was a time in my life when I realized that uh, Jesus, and I put my faith and belief and trust in him, and because of my faith, no. He says, God awoke my heart to see the exceeding sinfulness of my life and my powerlessness to save myself. And then God moved me to see and understand that he had done it all for me in Jesus Christ. And he turned me into repentance, brought me to believe and trust in that salvation alone. And my hope and my rest is in him alone. And having begun there, then we don't go out and say, but now I'll do it all myself. Well, actually, that's what we do. But that's not deep inside what we want to do. And so when Paul is writing this, in a sense, he's writing this so that we can clear up a bit of confusion. We have to conclude here that Paul is speaking here to the Christian, and he's speaking as a Christian, and he's relating to them in the present realities of the Christian life. He's actually making an honest assessment of himself when he stands in his own strength before the law, and that's the big issue that's being addressed throughout this chapter, is the law. And even as a regenerate man, Paul is describing the attitude of the, of the regenerate man as he regards himself before the law, or as he learns to regard himself before that law. At least he's identifying himself in a certain way. Paul is looking at himself as he stands as flesh and bone before the law of God. Just what he is in his own physical and psychological energies before the law of God. And he sees and he allows that there's nothing in himself to carry out that law and fulfill it. So what Paul is trying to do is he's actually trying to correct some confusion that comes along in the believer. Here Paul says we when he begins this conversation. He says we understand these things and then he starts speaking of himself. And so at the table at this moment is conversation. He's addressing the believer. The individual has come to faith in Jesus Christ. And many of these individuals are young believers. They're new believers. And he's speaking to them as well. And he's teaching them a lesson through his own experience in his own life. And he's trying to clear up some confusion that may still come to them because of patterns that they haven't been able to break free of. And here's the first point of confusion. It's this. It's the confusion to believe that you can go forward in your salvation resting in your own fleshly powers. It's the confusion that believes that your own physical and psychological strength, after having come to Jesus Christ and found his salvation from the penalty of your sins, that you can now march forward and somehow rescue yourself from the power of sin. This is what is being addressed, and this is what is being confronted here and corrected. And what we need to see here is Paul is looking at himself in the present moment as to what he is in his flesh, in his body in his members, his fleshly makeup. And we pointed out before when we were looking at Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 7 that you will see that when Paul regards himself in this way, he uses three words. These three words speak of literally his corporal nature. He uses the word sarx, which is flesh. He uses the word soma, which speaks of his body. And then he also speaks of his members and that part of him which are just basically extensions of the physical activities of his body. And so... Paul is looking at himself in this way, his fleshly makeup, his unique genetic contribution that shapes him for who he is. And he says, I am carnal. That is, I am of the flesh. Now he's describing that part of himself, sold under sin. We get confused in this very matter, but Paul isn't. He has come to see that in his own fleshly power, that those fleshly elements in himself are still subject to becoming enslaved to sin. So let me explain this a little bit more to you. I want you to see this, and I want you to see that Paul is addressing this as a mature Christian. 
It doesn't sound like it when I'm reading this, but Paul's addressing this as a mature Christian. And the more mature Christian, when they look back on the spiritual journey of their life, see that there are two points of discovery that they made of their complete inability, two points of crisis that they entered into through those discoveries that brought them into the saving work of Jesus Christ. Not one, but two. And the mature Christian sees this. The first one comes, the first discovery, the first crisis of discovery comes when they recognize their complete inability to save themselves by their own activity. They see that they have no righteousness in themselves. There's no way that they can do a good deed or they conduct any kind of work or righteousness that somehow will purchase for them salvation that will clear up the sin that is accumulated in their life and to give them a righteous standing before God. They see instead that in their own flesh and in their own powers, they stand condemned before God. And in that sense of condemnation, they cry out for God that God would deliver them and God would save them and God would provide a righteousness for them that is not of themselves. And in that moment, they're born again. They're saved. They're given new life. And that's that first crisis that they pass through. That's that first moment of discovery. That's that first time in which they were awakened to their sinfulness and they were granted repentance and they turned in faith to Jesus Christ and they were transformed or changed. They converted to follow him and they were given new life. They were regenerated. They were given new life and God then began to pour into them by his Holy Spirit, the witness of his presence and his life and his power. And they were transformed. And that was a wonderful crisis moment of salvation. But then they went on and a second crisis took place. Sometime after this, the second crisis came not only in this moment of the initiating of their salvation, but then in the moment in which that salvation began to carry itself out in sanctification. When they discovered that they had no power in their own flesh to deliver themselves from the daily onslaught of temptation that the world and Satan would bring against them. When they found and when we find that we cannot live holy lives that we want to live, in order to fulfill the law of God. And this is a second crisis. I couldn't save myself from the penalty of my sin, and this is it. I can't save myself now from the power of sin. And in the crisis, they, they turn back to put their trust and their confidence completely in Christ. So let's look at this second crisis of faith a little more fully, and that's the emphasis I want to have at this point here, as Paul's clearing up this confusion. Once saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone and from the alienation and condemnation that our sin brings against us, that floods up within the individual who comes to that saving faith, a, a, an eagerness now to engage the moral challenges of life with new vigor and with a new mentality and a new energy. And I'm going to go out now and I'm going to live for the Lord Jesus Christ and I'm going to serve him. And, and we want to live for Jesus to such an extent that we're even willing to die for him. We're like Peter that way. You'll remember in Matthew chapter 26 when they're celebrating the last meal, that the Lord Jesus tells all of his disciples that very night that all of them are going to be caused to stumble because of him and they're going to depart from him. And Peter voices his own protest. He says, Lord, even if everyone else stumbles because of you, I'll never be made to stumble. The Lord Jesus turns to Peter and says, Peter, this very night, before the rooster crows, you are going to deny me three times, Peter's answer is, Lord, even if I have to die, I will never deny you. Peter is 
intent on following the Lord Jesus. He's ready now to live out this dedication to Lord Jesus. And even if I have to die, I will never deny you. And the reality is this, and we learn it, that in order to live in sanctifying grace, Peter has got the order wrong. Death has to come first. And in this case, Peter has to, and we have to, experience a death of our view of our own powers and our own abilities. It's not that we just die to ourselves, but we die to our self-confidence in this corporal nature of what we are, what we can perform, and what we can do in our own strength. Peter had to come to a death of this as well. And so the Lord Jesus lets Peter go into a crisis of discovering this truth. And he's going to find out that in his own flesh, he could not produce anything that would allow him to live faithfully for the Lord Jesus Christ. He's actually going to find out in this process of learning this, this devastating reality that he will, in his own power, deny Christ. And it's devastating to Peter. And after Peter learns this lesson, we're told that he went out and he wept bitterly. And what Peter was having in that moment was a, O wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death discovery? And this is exactly what Paul is sharing with us in Romans chapter 7. He's sharing with those that he's writing to his own discovery. The confusion of self-confidence to achieve your own walk of holiness is dealt with in this tremendous crisis. And this is the crisis that Paul is talking about. Last week we said this. We said that Paul is speaking of the born-again believer who discovers the ongoing weakness of their flesh when they attempt through the achievement of following the laws of God to accomplish a holy life. And they find out they can't do it. They fail. That they're not up for it. The newly saved person feels this power of salvation released upon them. They know the weight of guilt and sin rolling off from them. This moment of freedom from their sense of condemnation. This moment of release from trying to prove their own righteousness, their own saving righteousness. And in that moment of relief, they have stirring up within them a whole new field of interest. They want to live for God and they want to honor God and they have whole new desires pulsating through them because they've been born again. They want to love Him and serve Him and follow Him and they want to go wherever He wants to take Him. And they even have a fresh view of the law of God. That law of God that they may have tried to fulfill in order to prove themselves righteous that eventually began to resent because... They couldn't fulfill righteousness in it. Now they see it as a law that expresses and was framed around and expressive of the beauty of their Lord, the lawgiver. And they have a relationship with that lawgiver. And so in the law, they want to live for him and glorify him and please him. So they set out through their own strength and by their own effort, by the marshalling of their physical energies, in essence, to prove that now they can do it. And they could live for him and honor him and in essence, what they're doing is through the law over again because of the pattern they had before. They're just trying to prove themselves in the law. And they're going to fail. We fail when we do that. We'll not fail just once. We'll fail over and over and over again when we approach our pursuit of holiness by just trying harder and trying harder and trying harder. Well, you'll just fail harder and you'll fail harder, and you'll fail harder in your own physical efforts. This is the reality that Paul is referring to. That's the point of confusion that's being corrected initially. We're wrong to think that once saved in Jesus Christ, 
that we're able to go forward in a strategy of self-effort to live out that salvation successfully. That's what Paul's trying to teach here. Here's a second point of confusion I believe that Paul is trying to correct here that we see in this passage as well, in this segment that we're reading. It's the idea that as we face this challenge and as we find that we're not succeeded, another idea begins to formulate in our minds, which is, well, then I just have two natures that are fighting within me. I have two natures, two kind of equal natures and two parts of me that are just fighting. And Paul is going to say things to us that help us recognize that this is not the battle of two equal natures at war within yourselves. It's not that you're made of one part good and one part bad. It's not that you're one part sinner and one part saint, you see. That's what's going on. It's not the old man is having a battle with the new man, and Paul's going to correct this. Now, actually, this is a popular idea when approaching this text, and it's a wrong idea, I think. It's a mistaken idea. In order to understand and explain why it is that the believer goes on in ongoing weakness and an ongoing tendency to follow into their sins and follow in the ways of death, an idea has been perpetuated that the Christian now, after he comes to Jesus Christ, has two natures. And there's this inward conflict. He's this dual thing where there's this good part of him and this bad part of him, and there's the old nature and the new nature, and that they're war with one another, and our bodies are just kind of like this receptacle of this battle that's going on between these two squaring off with one another. And I think that's a mistaken notion. But it is actually one of the more popular notions out there. And actually, in a sense, makes us not unlike our idea of the unbeliever. You know, we have the idea of the unbeliever, and he's just got a devil on one shoulder, and he's got an angel on the other shoulder, and he just, his little conscience is telling what he should be, but the little devil is making better arguments, and he just oftentimes doesn't win because he's just not as powerful, and that little devil takes over, and the little angel on this side loses, and the little devil on this side gets a little bigger, and... But in this case, it's more involved than that. The Christian, according to this view, has a divided nature, and the old sin nature is just ghosting him and controlling him, and his new nature is being overcome by that old sinful man that is in him. We have to say, why is that a wrong view? Well, we have to go back to what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. We talked about this. And Paul emphatically says that the old man, for us, is dead. That's the old spirit, the person we were before coming to Jesus Christ, dies when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. We've said it this way. When you give your life to Jesus Christ, you're born again. You're given a birth certificate. It's pronounced that now there's a new life. You're a new creature. Anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Everything has become new. And, and not only that we get this birth certificate, what we said was also you get a death certificate at that time. That old man, that old person you were, died in Christ and it's counted as dead, and it's an actual thing. Take our Bibles and let's just read verses 1 through 10 of Romans 6. We won't give commentary. We've given a lot of commentary. We hung in Romans chapter 6 for some time, but let's just read it as we keep in mind this argument that we're making here, that Paul is making. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us who were baptized, immersed into Christ Jesus, were immersed into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. You see, those are all past tense. These have all happened. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. 
For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, which is true, we have been, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. And now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him for the death that he died. He died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon. It says, do the math. Add it up. You yourselves to be dead. You can't reckon what isn't true, what isn't the absolute declaration over your life. Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what Paul is saying here. The Christian is a new spiritual creation completely down to the core of his or her being. The sinful impulses that they feel are not emanating from some dark, divided personality within themselves. We are not Dr. Jekylls and Mr. Hyde's. No. The sinful impulses and temptations that are setting off within us are the work of something within our material substance, in our flesh, in our bodies, in our physical members. It isn't that our bodies are entirely evil. Actually, God has a design and a plan to redeem our bodies one day into glorified bodies. And God gave us these bodies, and it was a part of what God did when he made us in his image, but they are fallen and corrupted bodies. They remain the receptacles of the ongoing contagion of sin that's in the world. It rests and it resides and it settles in our flesh and our bodies. As such, we can see that sin still has an entry point into our lives and a point of expression from us, but it all happens on this physical and we might say psychological level, this part of how we're made up genetically. And therefore, when Paul speaks about the tendency to sin, he's very careful, and you'll see that in this passage, to identify that part of himself in a limited way. When he is falling into this temptation of sin, he makes sure to locate that it's all happening within his body, within his flesh, within his members. This is the point where I think a lot of Christian thinkers get confused. They take those terms flesh and body and members, and they see that it says flesh, body, and members. And then they say, this is speaking of our sinful nature. And then when they come to that passage, they just put aside the terminology flesh, body, and members, and particularly flesh, and they just interpret to mean sinful nature. And now all of a sudden we're back to these two natures within us that are squaring off with one another, and it isn't. Paul even when he speaks of the flesh, then he backs up what he means by speaking of the flesh by speaking of the body and by speaking of the members and saying this is where sin is expressing itself. They confuse the language that Paul uses to describe his own struggle that aligns with their own struggles in their flesh and their bodies and their members and they interpret to be a struggle between two natures, two parts of us that are on equal footing. That's not the case. This is a struggle of the new people we are in Jesus Christ the new man that a born-again person is, created in Christ Jesus, infused with the life and presence of the Holy Spirit, addressing the ongoing appetites and activities of sin that reside in our flesh. So don't get confused when you read all these eyes that Paul is throwing around here. When he speaks of the eye who is 
prone to sin or falling in sin and falling into compromise, he's speaking of that physical part of himself. And when he speaks of the eye who hates sin and who delights in the law of God and wishes with his mind to serve the law of God, he's referencing that true self. He's referencing that central self that is his new spiritual being. One of the reasons we get confused on this is because of the very way in which we approach our own bodies and we speak of things. Let's say an individual gets shot. He usually says if he's been shot, someone shoots him accidentally or purposely. He says, I've been shot. He doesn't say, I have been struck by a bullet in the upper right quadrant of my thigh, of my body's thigh. He describes it as happening to himself. Many of you have, over this last winter, had different miseries of sickness that have come upon you and you don't just simply identify the miseries in the locality as at that point in time expressing itself. It's happening to you. It's happening to you. You blend these two together and you blend what's happening with your body with yourself. And Paul is doing the same thing. That's all. Let's follow this in the text here. Let's go to verse 14. Let's just walk our way through this. Paul says here in verse 14, I am... Of the flesh, that's the word carnal there. I am of the flesh, sold under sin. And then there's a note that even in saying that, that he's differentiating all that he is as apart from the flesh. I am of the flesh, sold under sin. That's the idea. That's the context here. And then in verse 17, he clarifies that. Now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And we can ask the question, well, where does that sin dwell in him? What part of Paul is hosting that sin? In verse 18, he clarifies, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. So there in verse 20, he makes this statement in which he separates himself from his flesh. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me, that sin that dwells in his flesh. So you can see here that Paul is setting himself apart from the activity that's taking place in his body and that leads him into failure and sin. And he's able to say that that's really not me. That's my sin-sick body. Well, who is Paul then? Paul describes who he is in verses 21 and 22. Look at the last half of verse 21. He is the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. That's me. That's the core of who I am. Well, well, then, Paul, where is sin expressing itself in your life? Where is it rising up for yourself? From verse 23, he explains again. I see another law. There, where you see law, you have to say, I see another principle exercising or energizing in my members. That's an expression of the extensions of his body. In my body, in my flesh, warring against the principle that governs this new mind, this spiritual mind I have in Christ. So, now look, Paul is bothered. The flesh seems to be winning and taking his spirit hostage into sin that's found in his members. So let's read this in verse 23. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. And so at this point, Paul steps out of his body almost altogether, and he cries out for help. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? He's made a differentiation here. There's a reason why we need to clear up this confusion. There's a reason why we need to make this differentiation and, and establish it in this way. It's because Paul, in all that he's saying, is actually paving a way for victory for the individual. He's paving a way for us to understand how the gospel works in our life to bring us into victory. You remember, the gospel message is in a gospel message of an exchange that takes place. In salvation, 
in that moment in which I am redeemed from my sins, what happens is I put faith that Christ has offered the exchange of dying for me in my place for my sins. He's taken my guilt and my sin and the penalty that I deserve and living a guiltless, sinless life, he goes to the cross and bears that penalty for me on my behalf. That's a wonderful exchange. And I accept that he's made that exchange for me. Not only that, he's lived this perfect righteous life that I haven't been able to live. And as I believe in him, he credits to my account, you might say, all of his righteousness. So that I come before God in the merits of Jesus Christ and stand before him justified. That's a wonderful exchange. But that's not all that is the exchange or all the gospel of salvation. The gospel of salvation then goes on. And God then, for the weakness I have in my own flesh's proneness to sin and my inability and my own powers to live to honor and glorify him, God then gives me his spirit and he gives his spirit to a new man that he places within me so that by his power and by his strength alone, I might live in holiness. I might live to honor and obey him. I'm not scratching and clawing in order to gain this righteousness. I'm living the exchange that... Christ has provided for me. Well, there's one more question with this text, and I want to press on so we can move on here soon to Romans chapter 8. But the question is here, is Paul in this passage speaking of the born-again person or his life and his new birth and his regenerate life in some past moment that he's moved on from? Or is Paul speaking about some present attitude and idea he has towards himself in that very moment? In other words, is Paul speaking about himself when he was an immature Christian before he had come to realize these things and found the secret and the answer? Or is Paul speaking as the Christian who's mature and grown and this is his perspective on his life in the moment? Here's what I think the answer is. Yes, Paul is speaking about the immature believer who has yet to discover the strength and power that comes to his life as he rests completely in the saving work of Jesus Christ and... Then he's speaking of the mature believer who is a saying and looking at what he has in his flesh and sees that it's no different than it ever was. So he continues to lean and depend on Christ alone. Let's look at this really quickly. He's first speaking of development that he has passed through in his Christian journey, what he has gone through. He's describing that moment when he's moved from just being saved to moving on to recognizing the saving work, the ongoing work of the Spirit in his life. I think what happened to Paul was like this. He even says in Philippians chapter 3, when he approached the law, he was blameless. He was really good at it. But then he realized it wasn't sufficient. There was still a sin and it wasn't a righteousness that God could honor. He needed the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he embraced Christ and he believed in Christ. But then after that, I think what happened was Paul said, I think I'll go back to what I'm good at. Now, because I've established the right footing here, it's on Christ and what he's provided. Now I'll live this righteous life that's required of me in the law. And he finds out that he's not adequate for it. That he's a young, immature believer. And actually, now sin becomes exceedingly sinful to him. And it begins to overwhelm him. And he finds that he's powerless against it. In fact, Paul didn't realize the battle with sin that he'd ever had until after he became a believer. And now it's more involved and more engaged and more overwhelming and more overpowering. And this immature believer is like a baby Christian who's just being rolled by his own flesh. And sin, he can't escape it. And oh, wretched man that I am. I know that I've been justified. Now he's going to come to. How wonderful. But he's struggling with this thing. And in fact, there's a bit of a clue for us in this. 
When Paul is writing these things, and he's declaring these things, and he's describing this fact that he's almost being taken captivity by the law that's roiling in his flesh, you'll see that all through Romans chapter 7, Paul never once mentions the Holy Spirit. Throughout Romans chapter 7, Paul is just facing the demands of the law within the corrupt resources of his own power and his own flesh, and he's failing, and he can't do it. But in chapter 8, Paul introduces to us this great note of relief. You'll find in chapter 8 that Paul goes back to the gospel. He declares the freedom from condemnation that he has in Jesus Christ. And then he discovers he's, he's not to go on walking in the power of his flesh, but that he walks in the power of the Holy Spirit. With the Spirit abiding within him, the Spirit directs him into a spiritually minded life and not a fleshly minded life. What was the fleshly minded life? Well, I think it was his Pharisaic way of approaching the law. A spiritually minded life of peace and victory and triumph over the deeds of the flesh. Let's read Romans 8, verses 2 through 4. Here's where we're going to get to. We're not going to spend any time here this morning. But here's where Paul breaks out from Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 is this confusing passage of ongoing defeat. Romans 8, he says, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh. Whose flesh? His flesh. Paul's flesh. For what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh. I'm not walking. That's how we walk according to the Spirit. This is the part of the gospel that too many Christians never move into. They never avail themselves of. After having received Christ as the one who forgives them their sins and grants them an everlasting life, they never avail themselves of the outpoured life of Jesus Christ, the Spirit, to live in holiness. They then go on to try to contend as best they can with the challenges and the desire to be holy in their own strength and in their own power. And they, as a result, languish in one fleshly defeat after the other. And ultimately, they plateau in some form of spiritual mediocrity, stifled by the doldrums of their own weak flesh. Here the gospel offers the Christian the exchange of the Spirit, working with our regenerate new natures, to bring us to live in victory over the weakness that remains in our flesh. And the challenge for us is to direct our faith towards that provision. Not just my faith towards believing that Jesus can forgive me when I ask him for forgiveness. Not just the faith that believes that Jesus gives me his own righteousness that I can stand in God's presence righteous. Not just the faith that believes that now I have received the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, but also the faith that believes that I don't have to continue walking in the slavish, faltering weakness of my own fleshly energies to try to follow the law of God, but now I can give myself over to rest in the power of the working of the Spirit in my new nature so that I can live a life that fulfills regally the law of God. It's the discovery of greater is he that is in me than he that's in the world. It's the discovery that I can do all things through Jesus Christ who strengthens me. It's me working out my salvation in fear and trembling, for I know that it's God who works in me, both to know and to do His perfect will. It's relying on that and resting on that. 
It's a battle that's going on, but it's not a battle between two equal natures. It's a battle between my new spirit, my new man, in union with Jesus Christ, in union with his Holy Spirit that he's poured into me. And so united with him, I can go against the sin that appeals to my flesh and that is stirred up in my flesh by the God of this age and by the product of this world I live in. And through my spirit, united with the Holy Spirit, I have the upper hand. I can win this battle. I did promise victory, not in myself, not in myself, not to my credit. To the glory and credit of Jesus Christ alone by the power of the Holy Spirit. And oh God, forgive me for thinking that having been saved by you at one time, that I could go on without you in any way. I rely on you from moment to moment to moment to moment. But I had victory through you. The enemy wants to come along and say, ah, see, you've never really chucked this thing. You still are just as bound as you were before. The old man is just as alive in you as it was before. Nothing's really changed. You've added a little religion to your life, but you're still in the same shape and going in the same way and compromise and give in to these things. And we start believing him. And it's a lie. The old man is dead. He's dead. What's going on is the roiling of sin in my flesh. But for that... I'm a new creature in Christ, and I have his spirit. And as I resign myself to him, not saying, I'll take it from here, God, let me do it. Let me prove myself. Oh, what a terrible pattern in life. Let me prove myself. No. Jesus, I rest in you. Prove yourself. Prove your grace. Prove your power. Prove your victory. I reside in you, and I rest in you, and I take no confidence in the flesh. And that's exactly what Paul says and. Philippians chapter 3. He says that we are of such a mind that we are the circumcision, in verse 3, 3, in Philippians, we are those of the circumcision who worship God in spirit. We commune with God in spirit. We rejoice in Jesus Christ, and we have no confidence in the flesh. We've given up on that idea. In fact, he goes on to acknowledge that now we realize for some of you, if I have confidence, let me say, if you want to say you have confidence in the flesh, let me tell you why I have reason to have confidence in the flesh. Let me tell you my accomplishment. And he puts them out before them. But he says, now all that confidence, now I consider but dung. It's nothing to me. That I might have and be found only with a righteousness that's produced and developed in me by Jesus Christ. And then I press forward with that longing that I might know him. I might know Christ and Christ expressing his life through me in every way, even in difficulties and hardships and trials, that I might be conformed to him, even in the likeness of his death. I live in his power, and, and Paul acknowledges. Now listen, some of you haven't grown to this point. Let those who mature, he said, understand these things, and let you follow our example, we who are mature. But he acknowledges, he says there in verse 15 and 16 of Philippians chapter 3, Therefore let us, as many as are mature, have this mind, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that you have already attained, let us walk by the same rule and let us be of the same mind. What's happening here? Well, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul is writing as an individual who has walked out from Romans chapter 7 into Romans chapter 8. He's walked out from just trying to do this in his own flesh to living life in the Spirit and trusting entirely in the Spirit and His work. He's saying, but I know some of you are still in Romans chapter 7, and you're still struggling. 
This is why Paul is writing in Romans chapter 7 as a person who, and he's presenting life as the person who's the immature Christian before they've come into maturity. And at the same time, he's speaking as a mature Christian because as a mature Christian, he still has no confidence in his flesh. When he looks back upon his flesh, it's exactly as he described it in Romans chapter 7. It never changes. It will never get better. Your flesh is what your flesh is. Receptacle for sin. It's something that has to be managed and controlled. In Romans chapter 8, we're told that we are to, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds that are done in the flesh. So, Paul at no point in time has any confidence in his flesh. We have no confidence in the flesh, he says in Philippians 3.3. 3. And so, that's our assessment of ourselves. That's what we had to learn the hard way, the crisis, because God was breaking off from that pattern and that habit of trusting in our abilities, even after we became saved, so that we would go forward in our righteousness completely relying upon Him. And now that we've learned that lesson, it was such a crisis. It was such an issue. He had to so thoroughly defeat us that we learned to live in that promise and we renew ourselves in that crisis day by day. We never forget that there's nothing in our strength. I can say for myself, God has taught me that lesson once so thoroughly, so devastatingly, but he's had to bring me back to it over and over again. The door broke open once with violence as he showed me the weakness of my own flesh, but then regularly God had to show me again and again and again and again the way of life and victory is never to trust in my flesh. So this is where we came last week, and I'm going to repeat it to you again this week. I did it quickly last week. It's this. You will never be beyond the disappointing failures of the flesh until you are given a new incorruptible body at the resurrection. Therefore, you are never to put any confidence in it. You will never be beyond the weakness of the flesh until you're given a new incorruptible body in the resurrection. Therefore, you are to always be on guard against subtly relying on the flesh. You must learn day by day to rest and lean in Christ alone. The righteous shall live by faith in Him. You will never be beyond the sin-prone patterns of the flesh until you are given a new incorruptible body in the resurrection. Therefore, have mercy on those who are discovering by trial and error the failure of their flesh. Have mercy on those who are still processing Romans chapter 7 as we pray and long by example to show them and present to them the glory in the gospel in Romans chapter 8 of relying in the Spirit alone and walking in the Spirit. Have mercy on those who are caught up in the struggle with the flesh, have yet to fully learn of this rest and this power that Christ gives them. Here's the last one. You will never be beyond the putrefying failures of the flesh until you're given a new incorruptible body in the resurrection. Therefore, find your identity in the new creation that you have become when you were born again. Look at the battle of sin as a warfare of sin in your body, but look at it from a distance. It is no longer I, but sin that dwells in me. That new man is not under judgment for those sins. He is not under condemnation for those failures found in your flesh and the sin that rolls in it. We're free. And in that freedom, we're free for this reason, though. We're not free to do our own thing. We're free in that freedom 
to put the fight to our flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in that fight, we're promised victory. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Even so, may the Lord reveal this to you and make it known to you. You find your place in this journey. I trust and believe and hope that you've found the first crisis and passed it. You recognize that there's no saving in your own self, but by faith you've put all your hope and trust in Jesus Christ to rescue you from the penalty and the condemnation of your sin. But I also pray that God would have taken you and will take you to that complete and utter crisis where you lose all confidence in your flesh. That he would reveal to you at every point in which you have been going out by your own energies and trying to prove yourself the good Christian. And I would bless you by saying, may you fail miserably. So that Jesus might be all that you, dear Lord Jesus, might take over in that crisis to show that you are the true vine and they are but the branches, and that you, dear Jesus, might then pulse through them the life that they receive when they just rest in the vine. They draw from the life-giving sap of your holiness. They rely upon you that they would discover, dear Jesus, by your grace, that they can do all things through you who strengthens them, that you are all their victory, that you are all their holiness, that they might rejoice in the new life that they have, and in that life they might take authority through the Spirit to wield the sword of the Spirit to put to death the deeds that are still raging in their flesh. And so, oh God, to subdue it. These are the things we pray for. These are the things we ask for. We thank you, O oh God, that you've given us your spirit for this. And so you're glorified as your people give testimony to the gospel of exchange life through a holy life that you allow us to live. We ask, dear God, that you might accomplish that in us, that when people come to our church, they might sense and know that they're in the presence of people who are living in that power and might want it themselves. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.